Welcome to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education, dedicated to helping PTs and OTs improve patient outcomes while earning continuing education credit. For information on earning CE credits for this podcast and satisfactory completion requirements for your state and profession, please go to summit-education.com or click the link of the course description in your podcast platform. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Not sure which one it's going to be for you, but I would like to welcome you to Summit's podcast on geriatric strength training and rehabilitation. I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction to me. Uh, my name is Paul Frizzell, and I'm a clinician, probably a lot like uh, you. If you're out there listening, you're probably a clinician too if this topic area interests you. I happen to be a physical therapist. I work in primarily the outpatient setting, but I've also had a little bit of time spent in the acute rehab hospital setting. And definitely orthopedics is my area of comfort. That's where a majority of my academic training is, and that's where a majority of my clinical time has been spent. Also, since we're all friends here, if I've got to be honest with you, I'm a meathead. When it really comes down to it, I'm just a gym guy. So uh, I think this is probably why this area interests me so much. I really uh, I have an affinity for the application of strength training, progressive res- resistance exercise as it relates to rehabilitation at all different levels. But uh, definitely geriatrics. It's a very interesting area for me as a clinician, and I think there's more and more research coming out in this area. And it's something that I think we're going to be able to do a lot of really good talking about today and cover a whole lot of ground in a really short period of time. We're going to check out some of the new evidence on what's going on as far as uh, strength training as it relates to rehabilitation, specifically in our geriatric audience. So we're going to talk about some specific topic areas. uh, But where we're going to start is we're going to start by talking about sarcopenia. And specifically, we're going to look at sarcopenia in the geriatric patient in rehab. So, you know, the first question might be on your mind is, you know, what is sarcopenia? Great name. Love it. Love it. You know, because you've probably heard of osteopenia. And and so, you know, if you just think of sarco as really referring to muscle and penia as something that is being taken away, like osteopenia is a loss of bone. Well, sarcopenia is a loss of muscle, skeletal muscle to be precise. And what sarcopenia is, is that it's a skeletal muscle disorder that's associated with reduced muscle mass and strength, right? So it's definitely something that we're seeing it more and more, at least I am, I should say, in my clinical audience um, with the patients that I see. I see a lot of geriatric patients And this is really one of the preeminent problems that they're coming in with, although quite often that's not the diagnosis that they're coming in with. But it's a big piece of why they are where they're at with their problems. So so it's almost a lot of times, at least from what I've seen, it's, it's a background issue. But I really feel like that background issue 
is contributing to probably where their problems are, whether it's lower back pain, arthritis, uh, hip or knee arthritis, right? There's just so many different things. Or I mean, probably like you guys, you probably also get a lot of prescriptions that say muscle weakness on it, right? Yeah, well, there we go. Muscle weakness and sarcopenia, there we go. So, you know, let's look at it just a little bit closer here. And so, you know, as we talk more about sarcopenia, it, 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 we discussed that it's a generalized skeletal muscle disorder and characterized by that reduced muscle strength and mass. It's associated with a really huge range of adverse health outcomes as well as high social and economic costs. So individuals with sarcopenia end up spending more time in the healthcare system for more problems. Their management costs more. And as far as social costs, as far as how we look at where we may have to be involved in that care as a society, is really, you know, things that are associated with sarcopenia include falls, decline in quality of life, uh, increased uh, medical usage, uh, need for being in a nursing home or for assistance to live with activities of daily living. So all of that adds to the overall social costs uh, for helping to manage these individuals. So absolutely, sarcopenia, you bet, is a really, really, really big, big overriding health issue. And as our population continues to age and as we continue to get older and the larger swath of our population continues to age, this is going to be something that's going to become more and more prominent as far as how it demands the healthcare system pay attention to it and then begin addressing and managing it. And really, if you look at the rehabilitation professions, it's, it's my perspective that the rehabilitation professions are the single most important healthcare professionals that are able to manage this specific condition. So absolutely, absolutely, it is right there on our plates. And it's something that we need to become more familiar with, whether you are or aren't really, really seeing a lot of geriatric patients, because odds are pretty likely at some point in your career, you're going to encounter this or you're going to encounter working with geriatric patients. So Let's uh, talk about the, the specific things that happen with age, especially in regards to muscle mass, muscle strength. And so one of the things that, that's noted in aging, right, of course, we lose a lot of things as we age, hair, uh, skin cells, but muscle mass, definitely. The muscle mass reductions precede the decline in function that's seen in older adults. So this is one of the things that's been observed is that you start losing that muscle mass first and then the decline in function happens. So really something that is important to recognize is that being out in front and trying to maintain or reduce the speed of muscle mass loss as we age through the application of resistance training it's exceptionally important, and it's a way to try to be out in front or ahead of how this, this syndrome is affecting people as they age. Along with the muscle mass reductions that precede that decline in function, one of the things that's specific as we look at the muscle itself that's unique to that 
that that loss and that that progressive decline is that the muscles that are, are the ones that generate force or your power development musculature, which are the fast switch muscles, these decline faster than the maximal strength in older adults. So what that means is, is that power declines faster than strength. And, and, and really when you look at those two things and compare the difference between power and strength, Power is the ability to move a load with speed, right? So um, uh, great examples of of day-to-day activities that require power, catching yourself from a stumble, right? You got to apply that strength really, really quickly through through your legs to catch yourself before you fall flat on your face. So without power, you will not be able to apply that strength in a span of time quick enough in order to not let yourself fall down. Strength is the application of force, but there's no speed involved. So an example of strength might be pushing a thousand pounds across the room. Yeah, you can push a thousand pounds across the room, but it could take you all day to do it. But you're still strong because you pushed a thousand pounds, but you don't have a high power output in that standpoint right? Because the time is the important factor when we look at power. So although you may be able to maintain strength for longer periods of time, your ability to rapidly generate strength starts to decline as you age. And again, this is some of the things that really become important when we start looking at day-to-day function. You know, if you want to consider other things that require power, Think about getting up from a chair. Uh, we've probably all worked with a patient or two in our lives or in our careers, I should say, that um, don't really do all that great at getting up from a chair, right? So what do we do? We teach them the nose over toes, which is a compensatory movement strategy in order to accelerate and come up out of the chair. So really what we're trying to do is we're trying to use compensatory movement to increase power. Right. So that's an example of a a day to day movement that requires power. So absolutely. We've got a lot of different things that require power. If you think of the upper body, you know, one of the ones that I always use is putting a plate away in an overhead shelf. Right. Or a, a full jar. Right. It's just heavy enough. So if you move it really slow, it's going to be kind of difficult. So you've got to accelerate that that load up there, even though it may not be very heavy, you still have to move it quickly because if you move it too slow, you may not be able to overcome the force of gravity to put the plate back in the overhead shelf. So, you know, just like I say, sometimes it helps to consider some of the practical day-to-day things that really require a lot of power that you have a tendency to overlook, especially if you're not being affected in the same way as one of our patients is by this pathology. So, so really, you know, when we talk about all of these things that the sarcopenia is taking away from us, muscle mass that's preceding the decline in function, your loss of fast switch muscle fibers, declining your ability to generate force and to generate muscular power. Um, really, when we look out there at the tools that we have to manage sarcopenia, resistance training is really the only current effective treatment for sarcopenia. So this is what I mean when I'm talking about the idea that the rehabilitation professions are the single best treatment option 
for disease that's associated really with aging, right? Which is that progressive muscle strength loss. Also, you know, when you look at sarcopenia, not only is aging play a part of it, but also decreasing activity levels that often accompany aging. So it's not just the fact that somebody's aging, although you are going to lose more muscle mass and muscle power just from the aging process. But a lot of times what goes along with that aging is the decline in, in, in activity, right? And so those two things really have a tendency to come together and, and accelerate off from each other. So, so, you know, I'm going to use one of my favorite words here, robust. <laughs> love that word. So there is just some fantastic, robust evidence showing how effective resistance exercise can be for managing sarcopenia. I think one of the biggest things, and this is where it becomes such an amazing skill set, I think, that, that rehabilitation clinicians have that other professions don't have. It's that when we look at resistance exercise, it's not just resistance exercise, but it's the specific prescription of that resistance exercise. And I use the term prescription because it does need to be as precise as a medication, right? It cannot just be willy-nilly throwing, you know, let's do three sets of 10 of everything out there. Absolutely cannot be that. We need to look at each one of these individuals, identify strengths, weaknesses, identify what they can tolerate. Because again, one of the things that you're going to see with a lot of these patients, a significantly reduced tolerance for exercise. So we have to upgrade or downgrade the prescription based on how that patient is presenting to us. And everybody's going to be different. So that robust evidence that, uh, there's that word again, that robust evidence three times, um, it is really, really, really keying on the fact that the programs that are delivered need to be specific to the individual, right? And really targeted with specific types of interventions to maximize how much they're going to get from their interactions with rehabilitation professionals. And again, the evidence that's out there is quite consistent, right? We see it across a wide range of population groups, but it definitely needs to be prescribed in specific dosages. So when you look and you start thinking about, okay, well, what's the best types of interventions? Really, when, you know, of course, looking at research is, is one place that we want to help identify that. And where the research shows is that older adults with sarcopenia should primarily perform whole body resistance exercise targeting major muscle groups, but the lower body should be the foundation of resistance exercise programming, right? And, and the reason for that is, is because how, first of all, large the lower body musculature is, Right? And second of all, how important that lower body musculature is for your activities daily living, walking, rising from chairs, going up and down stairs. So really lower body exercise should be the primary target when you're developing your risk resistance exercise program. Upper body exercise definitely needs to underpin uh, also some of the exercises primarily for the functional activities like putting away coffee cups, um, the upper body 
activities that require strength, cooking. I, I had one patient, funny one, I mean, it was funny to me. Uh, she threw out her shoulder mixing cake batter. You know, so you don't think about that type of stuff, but that really takes a lot of shoulder strength, rotator cuff strength, and, and she just really, really, really juiced her shoulder up mixing cake batter. So again, this is the types of things from an upper body standpoint that become really important to include upper body strengthening. But when we look at the evidence that's out there, really your, your primary target muscles that you want to focus on and that should make up a majority of your resistance exercise program should be lower body muscles when you're working with patients with sarcopenia. Questions become, as we look at these types of patients and their tolerance for exercise, where do, where do we look at our prescription as far as frequency per week, right? How much is too much? How much is not enough? So looking at these individuals, a lower frequency uh, per week of resistance exercise has the, uh, really some advantages. It allows the individual a greater time period to recover, which is one of the big differences between younger and older individuals involved in resistance exercise. What's been found is that in a ratio, both groups of people gain strength in relatively similar levels, but your older individuals take longer to recover. So when we consider these individuals that have sarcopenia, we know they're already at a declining functional state. So they do need greater time periods to recover between each session. And so this really becomes an important piece of the big overall picture because it helps give us an idea where we may wanna focus our time. And so two training sessions per week is really the ideal standard for prescribing resistance exercise for older adults with sarcopenia. Now, again, I think one of the things that becomes really important when we look at this, you know, does that mean in rehab, I should only have my patient in there two days a week? Absolutely not. Because when you look at what a well-rounded program uh, entails for patients with sarcopenia and patients with declining function. It entails cardiovascular exercise. It entails strengthening exercise. It entails balance, gait training, and flexibility exercise. So you, as, as a clinician, I mean, you should have no problem filling out five days a week with different interventions on each day of the week right? This is, there's a lot to work on, but the focus when we look at strength can really be towards that twice a week to optimize what those patients may be able to withstand and then also to optimize their benefit timeline. So, and then one of the other pieces of the puzzle that can become difficult you know, because when you look at a lot of strength training literature and, and literature on prescribing exercise, a lot of it comes down to, okay, use 50 to 65% of one repetition max, one RM, or 70 to 85% of one RM. Well, how do you get a one RM on somebody who's 74 years old and sarcopenia? I, I got news for you. It's pretty tough. 
So one of the things that's been a really, really great tool, and the research, again, substantiates the use of this, is using what's called the Borg rate of perceived exertion scale. I mean, we probably all encountered this in, in our early Therax classes, and sometimes it gets lost in the back. You know, it's kind of piled up behind a whole bunch of knowledge back there. Maybe you want to dust that knowledge off and get back and use that rate of perceived exertion because it's been shown in multiple different studies to be a very good way to be able to estimate loads for developing exercise prescription for patients with sarcopenia. So rate of perceived exertion is a fantastic tool to be able to use. It's a, you know, it's called the Borg scale and there's one uh, scale, I believe it goes from six till 20, which I never understood why they picked those numbers, but you know, Dr. Borg, he's a bright guy and picked those numbers. But then there's also a modified scale that's the one to 10 scale, which I think is a lot more comfortable for everybody to associate with. So a lot of times I'll use that modified RPE scale or, you know, rate of perceived exertion as a way for a patient to judge how hard they're working. I'll also a lot of times ask them that at the end of the visit. I'll say, hey, when we get done, you know, on that one out of 10 scale where one is, this is so easy, I can do it all day, or 10 is, I'm working as hard as I possibly can. Where did you feel like you were for that entire visit? And it gives you a chance a lot of times to see where these individuals interpret their workload versus what you might see them putting out. Because a lot of times what I've noticed with these patients is that you don't necessarily see the same type of uh, physiologic signs of workload as you might with a younger, healthier patient. So what a lot of times you'll see in other patients that may be a little younger or of a little better health quality, you might see them sweating, you might see them winded, you might see them kind of starting to lose form or break form. And a lot of times I've seen these patients, they really, you know, you don't necessarily see them to appear that they're working really, really hard, but they may get to the end and tell you, man, that was about an eight out of 10. I'm really, really tired. Or the other thing that they may tell you, you may get done and they'll say, yeah, that was about a two out of 10. But then they come in the next time and they go, oh my God, I was so sore. I could barely walk for the rest of the day. And so that gives you a chance to use that, that RPE scale in a lot of different ways, not only for the exercise prescription, but also as a way to measure overall workload. So really, really like that scale and a lot of really, really good exercise or excuse me, exercise research that, that substantiates us using that as a way to develop appropriate exercise prescription for our elderly patients with sarcopenia. All right, let's move on a little bit because we don't have forever. I wish we did because I like this topic area. It's one of my favorites, but We're going to talk now in a little different area. It's in the same, and even to me, it seems like it's a really similar area, but it is different in, in its definition. And so what we're going to do is we're going to talk about strength training in the frail elderly. Frail elderly is a different way to define patients who are of declining function. And so when we look at what is frailty, what is it defined as? 
Frailty is defined as a state of physical vulnerability to external stressors that's associated with increased risk of disability, dependency, and mortality, end quote. All right. So, so yeah, so it gives you a picture of a person really kind of not functioning all that well. When we look at the literature, research shows us about 50% of people over 80 years of age are considered to be frail. And that is a big, big section of the population, right? That is a big, big section of the population. Um, frailty is further defined as a geriatric syndrome that's distinct from disability and comorbidity. Although it's not great at how they define it, it, it kind of manifests itself as, as several different things. And these things that it manifests as is an accumulation of physiologic deficits, um, chronic health conditions, and physical disability. This it, frailty is actually independent of age, but it is predictive of mortality, hospitalization, institutionalization, falls, and worsening health status. So, you know, frailty doesn't necessarily have to be your 80-year-old person, although 50% of people over 80 years of age are considered to be a frail, but it is not specifically defined just to geriatrics. So, you know, this is really, 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 I, I think, a, 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 I don't know if it's an interesting way for us to look at it, but it's, a, it's kind of a different perspective on sarcopenia because I think it kind of gives us a different way to look at patients and a more well-rounded approach at trying to help classify them rather than just muscle strength. So, and when we look at frailty, there's considered what's pre-frail and then frail, right? And so these are at two different spaces and two different ways to look at them. But a pre-frail older adult, they exhibit one to two physical deficits, right? And so frail older adults, they exhibit greater than or equal to three physical deficits. So again, you know, you look at these, it, it gives us some interesting ways to define these individuals. And it becomes also important for us to look at this pre-frail and then frail to help us define our exercise prescription a little bit better. So when we look at uh, pre-frail older adults and then frail older adults, we want to look at some different ways to prescribe exercise, what types of exercise is important for them, and then optimal dosage of exercise. So uh, we had a nice systematic review, and I've included some of those, well, not some of those, I've included all those references in the uh, 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 supplemental part of this course. So if you want to go on to Summit, and uh, you can check that out. You can check out those references. Um, but a systematic review took a look at exercise interventions with pre-frail and frail older adults. And I believe this was from uh, 2018. Yeah, 2018, the systematic review. And it suggested that the optimal frequency based on the literature that's out there was multi-component. So very much like patients with sarcopenia, aerobic, resistance, balance, and flexibility. And the optimal training dosage was two to three times a week. 
Less than two times a week with these individuals would likely not improve uh, fitness, while greater than three times a week may cause some individuals to become overtrained and lose interest. So there's also that balance, right? And, and this can have a lot to do also, implementing this can have a lot to do with the setting that you're working with these types of patients in. You know, I know like when I was in the subacute rehab hospital, you had to see a patient every day. They had to see PTOT speech three hours a day, five days a week, you know, and that, that setting, you're not going to implement this type of prescription. However, if you're in an assisted living facility, if you are working with somebody in the outpatient setting, now this becomes, or if you're working with them in home health, now this becomes a place where these prescriptions become that much more important. Or if you're working with somebody as a cash-based therapist and you're looking to say, hey, this is about what the research is showing us that's going to be the best thing for you. This isn't you know, anything besides just evidence-based exercise prescription. So the setting definitely can affect how you can apply this, but that two to three days a week is an important, important uh, dosage amount to try to optimize what your patients are going to get from their time with the rehabilitation professionals. Also some things that uh, again with this audience becomes important when you're going through and prescribing exercise, especially cardiovascular exercise, I'm recognizing that many of these individuals, they're going to be taking different types of heart medications that may affect their heart rate. So again, that rate of perceived exertion scale becomes really, really, really valuable to be able to use. And your rate of perceived exertion when working with frail and pre-frail older adults or adults uh, should be between 12 and 14, which is considered that somewhat hard, right? Hard range that's going to be your best range to be in for those individuals. If you're, or if you're on the modified board, that's a, about a three to a four, right? So again, when you're working with these individuals, you want them working at a level that's challenging, but not overwhelming, right? It is not necessary when they're that far deconditioned to really try to push and push and push into these extreme levels. So uh, again, when you look at these individuals, the same thing goes for your aerobic exercise. You should be at a moderate to vigorous level intensity. Breathing should be rapid, but they should be able to carry on a conversation with you. And uh, you know, some people will call this one the talk test. And there's actually some nice literature on that as a clinical way to assess cardiovascular output. And so the talk test is, is that you should be able to talk to your patient in a normal voice and speak in full sentences while they're doing cardiovascular exercise. If they can't say a full sentence, they're working too hard. And if they can yell at you, they're not working hard enough. So I'll always tell my patients that if you're starting to yell at me or if you're talking really loud, it's just going to increase the exercise intensity. So you may want to speak quietly in full sentences to me so that we don't necessarily have to get more workload, right? And the, and the rookies are always the ones that are talking really loud. You guys know and you girls know. It's always the rookies that are talking really loud and going and going and going, but it's the veterans that go, hey, I'm going to talk quietly, full sentences, nice and smooth, right? So that's 
it's definitely uh, a nice test to be able to use. And you can talk to patients and tell them about that test while you're doing it. So, um, you know, some other things that have been found for, uh, you know, patients that are considered to be frail. Some things that are important, obviously resistance exercise, right? Because that's really what this entire hour that we're hanging out is about. So we know that resistance exercise is going to be key for these individuals, but also it's been found that increasing protein intake has been helped, has been shown to improve the symptoms of frailty in the older adults. So that becomes a really, you know, this is, um, let me see, what's the right way to put it? I want to make sure that I stay in my lane when I'm doing this. So I'm not giving out dietary advice like you should be taking in 2.2 grams per kilogram body weight or anything like that. I just want to tell patients that when they come into therapy, I do talk to them about nutrition because it is a component of therapy, right? In order to make gains from therapy, first you've got to get, a, get the right prescription and then you've got to recover from what you do in therapy. And then you've got to come back and progress after that. And one of the ways that can facilitate their recovery between visits, increasing protein intake. Always you just recommend high quality sources of protein, right? Lean sources, vegetable sources. Um, but definitely there is good evidence out there that it can contribute to improving the symptoms of frailty in older adults beyond just using resistance training, but also having increased protein intake. So, you know, just some take-home points about this, about these populations, right, is that when we look at pre-frail older adults and frail older adults, they should be engaged in exercise at least three times a week. The goal is to progress them to 45 to 60 minutes per session, but your frail older adults may only be able to tolerate shorter durations of 30 to 45 minutes. So there is some differences there in what they can tolerate. And again, if we remember when we talked about pre-frail, pre-frail was older adults that exhibited one to two physical disabilities. Well, frail older adults exhibited three or more physical deficits. So again, it, you know, it makes sense. The more deficits they have, probably the less conditioning that they have and the less that they're able to tolerate. Also, the less that they need to make gains, right? So again, you know, that's, that's also a piece of the puzzle. You want them doing enough to make gains, but not so much that you're overloading the system and causing them undue stress, undue fatigue, and really decreasing their enthusiasm for staying engaged with, with exercise so, or staying engaged with rehabilitation. Uh, again, like patients who have sarcopenia, you want to have multiple exercise modalities, but focusing on resistance training is an absolute key. Aerobic, cardiovascular exercise, balance, flexibility exercise, these are all important pieces of the puzzle to optimize what they're going to get from their time in rehabilitation and that they should be they should be engaged in exercise levels that are considered to be moderate to vigorous or somewhat hard on that Borg scale, right? So absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, just 
I'll give you my clinical side of it. My preference is, is that start them a little bit too light and then push up whenever you're in doubt. If you're in doubt, start light and progress up. It's a lot harder to start too high and then apologize to them afterwards when they're so sore and everything hurts for the next day and a half. And you say, okay, yeah, yeah, I just did a little too much with you. Sorry about that. It's easier to gradually progress up into it than it is to apologize and try to get them to come back to therapy after that. So absolutely, absolutely consider starting lighter. Use that perceived exertion scale. I do a lot of explaining to patients. And, and again, I always go back to that idea of prescription because I've found that a lot of my patients, they don't, what's the right way to put it? They don't recognize that this stuff's not random, right? I think a lot of times when you give patients an exercise program, they think they can go download the same thing off of Google. And if they can, that's probably not a good statement for your exercise programming. We want them to recognize that the program that they're doing is designed specifically for them. It's for the problems that were found in our evaluation of them. And we're going to give them things that are going to specifically improve their ability to function. Right, So explaining to them and educating them on the purpose of that rehabilitation program, why they're doing it, what they're expecting to get from it, really, really important. I found it to help buy-in. It gets them more engaged in what's going on, and it lets them know that this is not coincidental what you're doing. Right, You have a target, you have goals, and you have a real path to take them there, but they've got to follow the map that you lead them with. All right, so let's keep moving on here. Let's talk about some clinical indicators of you know, function, uh, but specifically when we look at frail, pre-frail, and then sarcopenia. Two of the really big clinical indicators that I like uh, using for both testing, but then also to give me information about how these individuals are doing overall and do they fit into these categories. So two big clinical indicators are, are gait speed and then grip strength. And as a clinician, at least in the outpatient setting, these probably are my two favorite go-to tests, especially with my geriatric patients. And I'll tell you why. First, they're just incredibly well-validated, reliable tests. They've been shown to be exceptionally applicable to patients and especially to geriatric patients. And their scores have great normalized data behind them. It's also very inexpensive tests to perform. Your hand grip strength tests, you know, the, your grip strength tester is a little pricey. I mean, the good ones can be, you know, upwards of four or five hundred dollars, but um, it's overall something that you're going to be able to use for a huge population of individuals, but great for use with your geriatric patients. And it does a great job at estimating overall muscle strength. Gait speed 
really, really easy to determine. And, and the test that I, I most often use for my determinant of gait speed is the 10 meter walk test, primarily because it doesn't take a lot of space, right? You need 10 meters, which is about 32.8 feet. I have that right up in front of me right now. So that's how come I know that. And it's just a really easy test. All you need is a stopwatch and you give the patients the instructions. And, and I do, when I'm giving my patient instructions, I give them the same instructions every time on how to do the test. That way I know every time that I'll give the patient the same parameters for performing the test. I also perform the test in the same location every time. I don't change up where I'm doing the test at. Uh, I am fortunate that I do have a, an unbroken space of 32.8 feet in the clinic that I work in. So that makes it much, much easier. So absolutely, I do that. Uh, and it's a great way to determine gait speed. And again, when we talk about gait speed and, and grip strength, it's just a fantastic, fantastic tool uh, to be able to use with our patients because it's just beyond simple, but really almost everybody can do the grip strength test, right? There's I've, I've ran into a couple of times where people can't. Um, Almost everybody can do a gait speed test. Now, of course, if they're a menacist, if they're a menacist or lower, can't do it. I've had some patients that are contact guard assist that I'm not really comfortable doing the 10 meter walk test with them. But for the most part, a majority of my patients in the outpatient setting are able to do both of those tests. So like I said, I get a lot of great information about it. When we start looking at what those two clinical indicators give us as far as information about the patient, um, patients with decreased hand grip, hand grip strength um, they're notorious for having uh, increased odds of developing activities of daily living disabilities, right? Um, and their greatest odds is a great piece of research. Um, and I want to make sure I get this right. This was from, hold on for a second, um, McGrath et al. And this is coming out. This was from, I believe this was from, hold on for a second. This was 2011. Yeah, 2011. I want to double check and make sure on that. But um, yeah, McGrath et al. And again, I've got this in, in uh, our reference section here. So, But uh, one of the things that was noted with these individuals that have diminished grip strength is, hold on, let me pull that back up. There we go. Sorry about that. Um, associated with uh, increasing rates of disability and ADL function, and their greatest odds were for problems or disability with eating, walking, and bathing tasks. Right, so really, that you know that tells you a ton about that individual's ability to function when you start seeing that decreasing hand grip strength. Also, other longitudinal investigations. Uh, have shown decreased hand grip strength is associated with an incidence of activities of living disability. And then it's also associated with all-cause mortalities in older adults, right? So decreased grip strength really, really, really is something that, you know, it, sh it should be setting off alarm bells for you as far as what it actually means to us 
when we're looking at this patient from a standpoint as a clinician, right? When they don't have good grip strength, this is not a good sign for this patient's overall level of function. So for as much information as we get from this test, it's very simple, very inexpensive, and gives us a great, great idea of where that patient's ability to function is in their day-to-day -day living. Um, uh, uh, when we look at gait speed, again, you know, gait speed has been uh, really well studied, well validated, and it's very simple, easy test to use. And again, gait speed has been shown to correlate to so many different things. And I pulled a, a systematic review, and this was Barreto, uh, Lenhard, and Rodriguez Martinez from 2018. And uh, they went through and, and, and took a look at gait speed and saw, you know, what lower gait speed related to as far as, as uh, function. And what they have found is, is that there was a really good association between lower gait speed and higher rates of disability, increased rates of frailty, uh, lower gait speed correlated to a, a sedentary lifestyle, right? It also correlates to falls, muscular weakness, diseases, higher body fat, cognitive impairment, mortality, stress, lower life satisfaction, lower quality of life, uh, increased napping duration, and poor performance and quantitative parameters of gait of, in community elderly. So, you know, you look at these two really, 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 I don't want to be oversimplifying about it, but these are two really, really easy tests to perform with our patients. And the information that we get about how this patient is really presenting, um, it, it's just phenomenal, right? So I love these two tests, not only as ways for us to look and, and get some objective data about the patient, but also really kind of giving us an idea, some really big clinical indicators on how well this individual is functioning in their day-to-day -day environment. Now, of course, there's other tests that are out there to use with geriatric patients that are fantastic, right? There's lots of them that are out there. Even one of the ones that I use uh, quite often is the 30-second sit-to-stand test. 30-second sit-to-stand test is a fantastic test. It's used by the CDC. Um, it's been correlated with balance and fall risks, right? It's been correlated with quality of life. Uh, it's been correlated with sarcopenia. So your 30-second sit-to-stand test, really, really nice test. I will tell you one of the, the uh, one of the problems I get with people on this one, and it, you sometimes can't argue with people. Um, I've, I've had some really short patients that almost have to jump out of the chair and then jump back in to do their sit-to-stand. And then I've had some patients that are 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", that really have a lot of problems getting out of a chair because they've just got really long legs. But, you know, these tests, um, they are well-studied and well-validated. Do they fit every single population? Not always. And like I said, that 30-second sit-to-stand test, which is the lower body strength endurance test that's used by the CDC, that's one of the ones I do like it a lot, but I do find a lot of times, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but enough of a percentage of time, I do have some challenges with people because of height. 
And there isn't anything that specifically changes that test or changes that normalized data, at least from the CDC, uh, because of the height of the individual. It does have a standardized height for the chair, though. So, you know, so that is something for us to, to consider. So, so overall, when we look at the clinical indicators that I really, really like when I'm looking at, you know, the function of my geriatric patients, gait speed and grip strength really, really, really jump into the forefront as two that are really, really valuable, very easy to do, and are able to be obtained and used by most of the geriatric patients that I have coming in the door to me. All right, so... Why don't we bring everything together? Because, you know, in the past hour, we've really covered a lot of ground, touched on a lot of different bases. So, you know, let, let's try to bring everything together here and tie it up in a nice little bow for everybody. Because, you know, we want to look and just discuss and say, really, what's, you know, our long-term benefits of strengthening and exercise and geriatrics on, on mobility and daily function? Right. So and so where we can kind of tie this in in rehab, because, again, depending on this setting that you're in, you may be educating your patient. My, my favorite one that I get from my patients after they're getting close to graduation from outpatient therapy is they ask me, do I got to keep doing this exercise the rest of my life? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah. And then, well, how come? And, and then this is where this comes in, right? Because you don't want to just say exercise is good for you because that really just under underappreciates what exercise can do. So when somebody asks me, do I really have to exercise for the rest of my life? I say, absolutely. And here's the reasons why. All right, engaging in a regular strength training exercise program reduces the risk for you to be admitted to a nursing home. Ding, 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 ding. That should get somebody's attention right off the bat. That's my first one to break out, right? That gets the audience just tuned right into me because as soon as you say nursing home, woo, everybody's ears pops up. So absolutely, that has been researched and that is an evidence-based piece of information to deliver your patients, right? So you also want to explain to them, and sometimes going through and explaining to them to this can be really, really valuable. People start losing muscle mass really in the third to fourth decade of life is when it starts, right? So in your 30s and your 40s, you really start losing muscle mass. And by age of 50 years old, you get about 10% of that muscle mass is lost. Right, so and then your rates of decline are approximately two to four percent every year after that. And where you lose the most muscle mass is in your lower body, right? When it's compared with the upper body. So again, that kind of when we take that information and tie that back to making up a majority of our resistance exercise of lower body work, well, it does make sense because that's where you lose a majority of your muscle mass. Right. So, you know, that's the things you start explaining to patients. Also, now that you kind of really drew them in with that entire discussion about going to a nursing home or not, right, because that should have their ears perked right up. 
Um, it's been shown that patients with higher levels of muscular strength that's associated with improved function, improved quality of life, and increased life expectancy. So what I tell people is, is that I want you to keep doing this so you put me out of a job and so you don't have to come back to physical therapy for something like this again. Because if you keep up with this, it's going to significantly reduce the likelihood that you're going to need me more so than anything else that's out there in the healthcare system, right? And I think that's the big, big take home that's a really, really great one to give to patients. What you're giving to them in their time and rehabilitation is some of the most valuable information and knowledge that they're going to get from their interactions in the healthcare system. So you're giving them tools that only have positive benefits to it. Everybody else is going to give them tools that have negative side effects. And all they got to do is watch one commercial on a medication and listen to the list of side effects. And then they come into the clinic and they work with us and you're going to prescribe them exercise and you're going to say, yeah, by the way, the side effects of my exercise are reduced blood pressure, reduced heart rate, improved quality of life, improved cognition, improved, you know, hey, my side effects are really, really good. <laughs> I mean, they're awesome. They are awesome. Go look at a medication side effects. See what those side effects are. Not so good. So I want you to continue exercising the rest of your life because I've got such great side effects that I'm going to educate you about and that I'm going to give to you so that you can go through and have a better quality of life and not have to hang out with somebody like me in the future, right? Um, engaging in strength training interventions as little as two times a week has been shown increased muscular strength, especially in the, the literature where they found that two times a week um, was in older females. So, you know, strength training, and this is, again, I think there's a lot of myths that are out there that as, as rehab professionals, we can help to kind of try to neutralize some of this bad information that's out there because most of the time when people think of strength training and, you know, going to the gym, they think of uh, meatheads, they think of people in cut-up shirts and tiny shorts, and, you know, it doesn't have to be that type of strengthening. And in one of the, the things that I always like telling people, gravity is a great strength training tool, right? And, and most of my patients... When they're coming in, especially patients that fit into these, you know, frail, pre-frail and sarcopenia category, their fight is with gravity. Your fight's not with me. Your fight's with gravity. And gravity is the best resistance tool that you need. You don't have to go buy ankle weights. You don't have to go buy anything, right? We've got plenty of things that we can do. And Mother Nature already built in the best resistance training tool possible. And it's gravity. So a lot of our patients, gravity is going to be a fantastic, fantastic resistance training tool. So educating patients about how to engage in strength training, it doesn't have to mean that you have to go spend a lot of money. It doesn't mean that you have to leave your house, right? It doesn't mean that you, you don't have to leave your house. You can go down to the community center. You can go to a bench outside and do sit-to-stands from the bench outside and do heel raises, 
you know, on, on the sidewalk, holding onto a tree. You can, there's just so many different ways that people can um, develop a, a strength training program and you can help them do that. And that's the really, really incredible, incredible information, right, that you can give to them. So, you know, when we look at all of these different fantastic things that exercise gives us, it just makes so much sense about how and why we want to educate our patients about this. So, so what I want to do at this point, let's kind of just go back through and we're going to get a little summary on everything here. And so, you know, at the beginning, we talked about sarcopenia and what sarcopenia is. And, you know, we talked about it's a generalized skeletal muscle disorder characterized by reduced skeletal muscle strength and mass. And it's associated with a range of adverse health outcomes, as well as high social and economic costs. Also, those muscle mass reductions precede the decline in function. So people start losing strength. And I, I, I had a couple of patients this week that were like that. You could see, I mean, they just, they did not score well on any of our strength tests and any of our functional tests, but they said, no, I'm doing everything as I want and with no problems at all. So, but those muscle mass reductions are already there. And now that functional decline, what was, was which was what was really coming next. Um, we talked about uh, rate of perceived exertion and how that can be a really valuable tool, not only for the prescription of different types of exercise, both aerobic exercise, but also for strength training. It can be a great way to estimate weight and loads uh, for prescribing exercise. And so when we look at older adults, they should be targeting primarily lower body exercise in order to optimize what they're getting from a resistance training program. And, you know, the research that we found from later, you know, that shows that you do lose more muscle mass in the lower body compared to the upper body. So it does make sense why you want to primarily do lower body exercise, especially for those activities of daily living, like walking, getting up from a chair and climbing stairs. Your upper body musculature should also be involved with strengthening, and that's going to be more for your, uh, you know, upper body tasks like household chores, uh, you know, putting away dishes, uh, clothes, putting away your clothes, those types of things. So, but because there's so much more muscle mass lost in the lower body, that definitely wants to make up a majority of your resistance training interventions. Uh, frailty and pre-frail. Both are states of physical vulnerability to external stressors, and these, these states are associated with increased risks of disability, dependency, and mortality, right? So it's definitely, it's a little different than sarcopenia, uh, but it also, again, kind of helps us classify patients maybe just a little bit differently and maybe a little bit more conclusively uh, to help guide us when we're prescribing exercise for these individuals. Uh, again, the frail individuals were broken down to pre-frail and frail older adults. Your pre-frail you can exercise for a little bit longer with these. Your optimal dosage for time frames with your pre-frail adults is 45 to 60 minutes. Optimal duration for frail adults is 30 to 45 minutes. So, um, and again, 
deficits and physical deficits is really where it helps us differentiate between pre-frail and frail. Pre-frail, you've got one to two physical deficits and frail older adults, uh, three or more uh, physical deficits. We talked about gait, uh, gait speed and grip strength. These are two really, really great clinical indicators of function. Uh, I, of course, you use a grip dynamometer to determine grip strength and gait speed. Uh, the test that I like to use for that one is your 10-meter walk test. Easy, well-studied, well-validated. Uh, hand grip strength has been shown to correlate to function. Uh, declining function also with declining grip strength uh, has been seen in people for eating, walking, and bathing tasks. Uh, lower gait speeds correlate to disability, frailty, falls, sedentary lifestyles, cognitive impairments, and, and mortality risk. A 30-second sit-to-stand test, that's another test that you can use for lower body strength endurance. It is used by the CDC, although, like I said, for me, clinically, I find that a majority of the people that I have can do the 10-meter walk test and the grip strength test. 30-second sit-to-stand test has I still use it quite a bit, but there's more limiters on it because a lot of patients either may not be able to get out of the chair without using their arms, or they might be too tall, or they might be on the other side of that where, where they're a little bit smaller. And your long-term benefits of strengthening exercise and exercise in geriatrics, um, the biggest one, like I said, really right up there, and it should be the number one on everybody's hip parade, is that engaging in a regular strength training exercise reduces the risk for older adults to be admitted to a nursing home. So we have gone over just a whole bunch of stuff in this hour. And I really wanted to thank everybody for jumping on board with what's my first podcast. And I hope you liked it. Hope you enjoyed the topic area. I've got some great supplemental materials where you can look at the references from the course. And uh, got a few nice things in there. Hopefully it'll help you with the material. And I hope you can take this stuff into the clinic and use it as soon as you're back at the office. Thanks to everybody. And I really appreciate your time. Have a great afternoon, evening, or morning, wherever it is, wherever you're at. Thank you for listening to the PT and OT Connection Podcast by Summit Professional Education. To view accreditation information for your state and profession and access completion requirements to receive a certificate for completing this course, please visit summit-education.com or click the link in the course description in your podcast platform.